the threat posed by Islamic extremists has been a key focus of Western governments for decades. These deeds make so evident the bestial nature of those who would assume power if they could have their way and drive us out of that area. Our enemy is a radical network of terrorists and every government that supports them. Tonight, I can report to the American people and to the world that the United States has conducted an operation that killed Osama bin Laden. I'm gonna bomb the shit out of him. But while Western governments and media tend to focus their attention on the Middle East, for the last two decades, Western and Central Africa has been ravaged by an Islamic extremist group called Boko Haram. This organization, Boko Haram, has been one of the worst regional or local terrorist organizations in the world. In the excess of Boko Haram, quite traumatic for all of us. In this episode, I speak to Vincent Voucher, an expert on Boko Haram and consulting senior analyst of the International Crisis Group about Boko Haram's origins, their purpose, and the future of West and Central Africa. Islam has a long and proud history in Africa that extends back to the 7th century AD. The Songhai and Mali empires produce great scholars whose religious as well as scientific research still dazzles scholars today. The richest man in history is reported to have been Mansa Musa, a benevolent 14th century Muslim leader from what is today called Mali. He inadvertently caused the Egyptian currency to collapse after he lavished gifts of gold on the citizens of Cairo on his way to pilgrimage in Mecca. But in the centuries since, more militant forms of Islam have sprung up in the continent in places ranging from Egypt to Algeria, and more recently, Nigeria. In 2002, a Muslim cleric named Muhammad Yusuf founded a group named Boko Haram, which roughly translates as, Western education is forbidden. In the two decades since, his group have gained notoriety for atrocities including civilian massacres, large-scale kidnappings of schoolgirls, bombings and other violent events that have spread from Nigeria into neighbouring countries such as Mali, Niger, Cameroon and Burkina Faso. Putting aside their religion, the actions taken by Boko Haram are consistent with the kind of violent activities we've seen from other political non-Islamic groups in Africa. Consequently, I wondered whether their actions were based on their understanding of Islam or whether they were simply copying the playbook of other violent groups. It was a question I put to Vincent. Conceptually, the people who started this group, were these militant individuals anyway who kind of co-opted Islam or was this truly born out of a particularly religious group who felt this was the obvious step to take? That's definitely the second, because Boko Haram really started as a rather substantial social movement, especially in the Northeast, that was built by a, by a very skillful preacher called Muhammad Yusuf in the, the first decade of the, of the 2000s. 
everybody acknowledges that he had this knack for communicating uh, with with people, including, you know, all through the society, from, from rich to poor to women to children. And he actually did a very substantial work to deploy his organization. There were cells of people, uh, including in small villages, even in the neighboring countries, in Niger and Cameroon, who were listening to his sermons, who were raising money to go attend uh, religious festivals. And that man, he was initially, you know, a sort of one of those Salafi preachers, very much influenced by this Salafi movement called the, the Izala, which is the sort of dominant Salafi group in, in Nigeria. And as happens often um, you, in the religious field, you've got tensions, you've got people trying to, well, in a way, play earlier than thou. And I think that's what Muhammad Yusuf was doing. And it was a bit of a threat because he was such a skillful preacher. He was so able, so much more able to reach out to people than those more intellectual and Salafi elites trained in Saudi Arabia and so on. This man, he was, he was a local guy. He was the son of a, of a common man. And he was doing all this substantial organizing. And of course, those movements, as they evolve, they get into trouble with the state. Because they criticize the state, they become political in a way, they begin to criticize the elites, religious and political. And so increasingly, through the first decade of the 2000s, there were a number of incidents pitting Yusuf against law and order, including religious order and the established religious elites. And that eventually led to this uprising of 2009, an urban uprising. But that was extremely poorly prepared. There was very little expertise in terms of combat, uh, very few weapons. It was really extremely amateurish. So it really started as a social movement. In places like the Middle East and in Afghanistan, we've seen groups such as ISIS and Al-Qaeda using madrasas to recruit youngsters into their courts. Was the same technique used to find followers for Boko Haram? The madrasa thing in, in, in West Africa is quite specific because you've got a lot of those boarding schools, so to speak, Quranic education boarding schools in which poor children are placed with a Quranic master and they, they go out to beg uh, or to work uh, on the farms. But usually, since now the movement has become really urban, they go out to beg in the streets to finance their livelihood and education. And, and there is a tendency to make spontaneously a connection between those Quranic boarding schools and the movement. In fact, it's a lot more complicated than that. Actually, a lot of those boarding schools, they fall under Sufi Islam. So a, a type of established pre-colonial Islam that is actually very much criticized by Boko Haram. And so the, the relationship between the two, you know, has always been complicated. If you look more closely, there's a, there's a whole series of different situations. In some cases, you have actually certain Quranic masters who have joined Boko Haram and who have actually taken all the kids with them along as they were joining the movement, you've got cases in which Boko Haram attacked a Quranic school, killed the masters, and basically stole the kids to include them, incorporate them, train them, educate them in their way. And then you've got cases in which some kids started attending, for instance, Muhammad Yusuf's preaching, because this sort of modern Salafi preaching had a, an air of modernity compared to the sort of classic Sufi tradition prevalent in West Africa. There's a tendency to stick to this very simplistic narrative, and I don't think it's appropriate. I think the relationship is a lot more complicated than just the sort of straight harrow from Madrasa to, to Boko Haram. 
You mentioned his appeal to women and children. Was that purely religious or were there societal and political issues at play in Nigeria that made Boko Haram attractive as a vessel for political reform? Well, it's, it's a mix of things, really. Like I was saying, he was offering a sort of entry into a more modern kind of Islam, uh, an Islam more influenced by global trends in Islam. And that counted for something. He was partly interested in, in educating women into religion, something which classical Islam was much less involved in. And so I know it may seem strange to say that, but for a lot of people engaging with Boko Haram, before it became violent, but actually even after it became violent, in a way gave a sort of emancipation. You, know, you could have access to a new religious culture. You could enter a community of equals. Boko Haram is very much in the continuation of classical you know, pre-colonial jihads in West Africa, which were essentially about renegotiating social order. And those movements were always very popular with groups that were marginal like slaves or herders. And in this sense, if you look at the composition of Boko Haram, the, the, where it developed, it attracted a lot of people in the informal urban economy, market people, people who, who, who were in difficult situations. And, and I think in this sense, Boko Haram is, is in a continuation with classical jihads in, in West Africa. When Boko Haram became engaged in violence, was that a turnoff to people? I mean, did it affect their support? Because now when you see the news, typically Boko Haram's represented as this fairly small armed group. But is there still a much wider support network involving people who aren't necessarily supporting the violence, but perhaps offer some kind of support, safe houses and so on? Well, I think... It really took off as a social movement, and it had a very large following throughout the Northeast, especially in Borno State. And I think it has been largely living off that ever since. There's a resilience to that. And one reason why there's been a resilience to that is that because the authorities, until relatively recently, have been very uncompromising. You know, there has been a lot of uh, extra-legal executions, illegal imprisonment, and so on. And so, in a way, lots of people who might have wanted to go, to go away from the movement at some point felt there was nowhere else to go. I mean, felt going back to the state side of things was just too risky, too dangerous. And so I think that has been a factor for their stability. But also, they've been able to, to create counter societies. You know, like when they went into hiding, some of them went hiding in the neighboring countries. Some of them went hiding into the bush bringing their families along. And so you've got generation, you've got kids who were raised in that environment. You know, it started in 2009. The big exodus basically was between 2010, 2013. And so they, they organized in, in isolated parts of Borno, on the Lake Chad, in certain forest areas. They, they really built a base uh, and they were controlling some territory. And they've been, they're still controlling some territory there. And the, the movement is divided. There are two factions at present, one which is affiliated to the Islamic State, the other which is independent. But they, they really have organized, you could call that proto-states in those small areas that they are controlled. In terms of these proto-states, what is the challenge militarily then for the Nigerian government trying to stamp out Boko Haram? Because, I mean, they've had involvement from the French government and the US government in fighting with them and their affiliates. Is it 
a difficulty of the terrain or are these areas that were never really firmly under the Nigerian central government's control? I mean, what are, what are the challenges preventing them from just defeating them? First of all, we shouldn't overstate the degree of invo- international involvement in support of counterinsurgency against Boko Haram. As opposed, for instance, to what we've seen in uh, Somalia or Mali. In Mali, we've seen French troops and, and sort of European uh, training programs and so on, you know, directly on the ground. There's been some of that, but actually, significantly, it's been happening more in the other Lake Chad states who've also been fighting um, Boko Haram, like, like Chad, Cameroon, and Niger, and much less in Nigeria, because Nigeria is a, is a difficult partner. It's difficult to, for international partners to engage in Nigeria because the elites are very, well, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're very self-confident. They, they, they have a powerful economic base because of the oil exports. You know, they have this sort of nationalistic, strong nationalism. And so engagement has been difficult. But there's been some support, mostly in the fields of, uh, of training and intelligence. Uh, so the fighting really has been done by Nigeria and the neighboring states who over time realized that they really had to do this together. And there's been some improvements in cooperation between the four countries, though it's still not great. The thing is, the terrain is quite a difficult, difficult one. Uh, part of the fighting happens on, on, in the area of Lake Chad, which is not just not an open water area. It's, a, it's an area with marshes, with, you know, very complex terrain. Part of the fighting happens in the Mandara Mountains, which border Cameroon and Nigeria. And again, those are, well, not exactly mountains, maybe hills is, is a better description. But this again is a very difficult tropical hilly terrain. And also the, the, those big forests in the center of Bono, the Sambisa forest. So that's difficult. Also, the four countries, they all have other problems to address. They all have insurgencies in other parts and they all have limited resources. And so mustering the resources to fight uh, this insurgency, which is for all of them in a, in a sort of margin, it's not really at their core for any of these. So I guess they, maybe they have a problem prioritizing. But also, and especially in the case of Nigeria, we have an army that has a very problematic history, problematic history of governance, uh, a history of, of, of violence, of abuse. And that makes it a very clumsy tool with low morale, with a problem of credibility, you know, dispirited soldiers who don't really trust their officers, a lot of conspiracy theories. So, you know, real trust issues. I think that that form part of the difficulty of providing a solid response. With respect to the neighboring countries, we've seen recently a military coup in Mali and a military coup in Burkina Faso, both of which to some extent have been tied by the media to people's frustrations with the government's inability to tackle Boko Haram. So I was wondering, is there a frustration from the neighboring countries with the Nigerian government in the same kind of way that we saw, for example, with Pakistan or Uzbekistan, when there was a perception that Al-Qaeda were able to run riot in Afghanistan because the Taliban couldn't or wouldn't stop them? Well, there was some of that initially. The neighboring states felt, well, this is Nigeria's problem. Nigeria has created this. We don't want to get involved. And in the early years, they knew that something was going on. There were all those Boko Haram people circulating in the border areas. Some of the first weapons that they bought, they bought from Chadian soldiers. 
not with the authorization of the government, of the Chilean government, but, you know, it, it happened, the logistics and so on. And the relation has always been very fraught between Nigeria and those three neighbors. So initially, it took, it took time to overcome this. But I think they have, over, they have overcome this. And I think that's one of the positive evolution in this, is that all the four late-chat states have realized that they need to do this together because it's going to affect them in a way or another. And I think we've, we've gone beyond that now. The problem is that, you know, they, they all have other, other issues to address. There is still a sentiment when you talk to people in Cameroon or Niger or Chad that the Nigerian power elite is not really giving priority to finish Boko Haram, basically. So they content to contain it and then they put enough resources to contain it, but they are not doing what it takes to finish it, is sort of prevailing opinion in the neighboring countries. And then on another tack, aside from military intervention, read that the Nigerian government have taken steps to try to de-radicalize people who they have, you know, extracted from Boko Haram areas. Is that something that's been successful or enduring as a tool against it? Actually, it's been quite successful, but in a way, not because of the properties of, you know, the, the, the radicalization program per se. It's been successful because it's been offering a way out to people who wanted out. Because the movement expanded in different ways. You know, there was this initial core of believers, but then at some point they were also buying people, to, you know, paying people to join. And at some point they were also, like I mentioned earlier, they were also kidnapping children in, in current schools and forcing them to join. Or they would, you know, in the areas where they would control some villages, they would go to the villages and tell them, well, you know, you join or we kill you. And so all those people, they wanted out. But then... Because of the abuses of the security forces, for a long time, it was extremely difficult for those people to get out. So the fact that the government created a deradicalization program, basically telling a defect, potential defectors that, you know, if they left, they would survive, uh, they would not be killed or, or jailed or not jailed for too long. Well, it, it has really had a, a pull effect and, and, and a number, large numbers of people have left because Nigeria and also the neighboring states have opened this door. Like in Mali, for instance, this doesn't exist. And I think that's that's one of the interesting things. Again, one of the few positives uh, in this context. You mentioned earlier Sufi Islam, which is traditionally the predominant version of Islam in Senegal and Mali. Has this conflict pitted Sufis against other Muslims or indeed Muslims against Christians, or is it more a case that, you know, rational-minded people, be they Sufis or Christians or what have you, have pulled together against this common threat of Boko Haram? Nigeria is, is a special place in West Africa on this Christian-Muslim thing. And I think it's actually one of the reasons why they've had such a virulent jihadist organization early on, you know, before everybody else, and, and, and why it's been so strong. It's a country that there is a strong perception that of a division between a Muslim North and a Christian South. So it's actually quite inaccurate because there are a lot of autochthonous Christians in the North and a lot of autochthonous Muslims in the South, and also a lot of migrants, you know, Christians from the South living in the North and vice versa. So it's, it's a lot more mixed than that. But, you know, there is this perception and it plays a part in Nigerian politics. And it actually was a factor behind the formation of Boko Haram, certainly. You know, there was a, a sense in segments of the Muslim community that, you know, the, the state was not working in their favor. 
And so that's that's still there. And I think it, it sort of sets Nigeria apart from, from the other countries. But we're seeing that those jihadi organizations, they are expanding well beyond well beyond Nigeria and Mali. Uh, now we are, there's talk of them in northern Benin, in northern Cote d'Ivoire, in northern Ghana as well. Um, so to me, this has to do with the fact that jihad currently is the only counter-hegemonic discourse that's available. That's the only one on the on the market. You know, before there used to be there used to be Marxism, but it doesn't exist anymore. So if you want to change the polit- political order in a way or another, that's the thing. Islam or this very radical, very violent style of Islam is showing a way and, and that has appeal. And depending on how your society works, you will have a, a smaller, a larger group of people who might be tempted to, to look into this direction for a tool for political change. You mentioned earlier that Boko Haram, despite previously declaring allegiance to ISIS, has more recently fractured where there's an ISIS group and a non-ISIS group. Do you think it's imploding on itself to where it will just kind of dissipate as small groups fighting amongst themselves? Or do you think there's a real danger that Boko Haram or perhaps some successor group could carve out something like the so-called caliphate that we saw in Syria and Iraq under ISIS? That's the million-dollar question. What we've seen is the involvement of the Islamic State has helped one faction of Boko Haram, the one called the Islamic State West Africa province, evolve significantly in terms of tactics, organization, develop its fiscal base, develop a more nuanced management of civilians, which is strange in a way, because in this conflict, the Islamic State is the more moderate faction, you know, compared to the historically independent Boko Haram, which has a radical takfiri, sectarian agenda. If you're not with me, even if you're a Muslim, you're you're just a bad person, you're just a fake Muslim, and and we can abuse you and, and kill you and whatever. Well, the Islamic State faction is a lot more subtle than that. And that has given them an, an, an edge. And that's how they were able in 2021 to get rid of Abu Bakr Shekau, who was the leader of the either two dominant faction. And so this Islamic State faction has been on top for a few years now. And they've been getting more astute, because, partly because they've been receiving advice from Islamic State militants from Iraq and, and Syria. And Libya. And we are seeing that they are trying to attack in other parts of Nigeria. A sister province of the Islamic State in Mali, Niger, and Burkina is also developing. So they are trying, obviously, that's their idea. Is they want to create, they haven't set specific limits. I think they don't necessarily think in terms of limits. They want to create not a caliphate, but a province, a very strong province of the caliphate in, in West Africa. There's no doubt about that. The question is, what are the states going to do to, uh, to stop that?